just as we we've been in a, in this time of worship um, kept kept hearing the words treacherous root and a labyrinth is described as a treacherous root or a treacherous path and I mean with us in the mechanical seal industry we have a labyrinth seal for sealing oil in gearboxes and the purpose of it is is you create a treacherous route so that oil can't get out and water can't get in and you separate because oil keeps bearings going water destroys bearings so you have this labyrinth seal and the purpose of it is you actually have this treacherous route and it, and it separates things and and I, and I just kept hearing the words treacherous route and, I, and I, I really feel that for a lot of us we've been navigating a treacherous route. We almost feel maybe stuck in a bit of a labyrinth and there's this, I don't know where the end is, but there's this navigating. And, and I had three pictures that came to mind and I want to share this just um, as, as we kind of go into the message. And the first one was one I shared last week and that was... Um, going riding with Dale and, and riding off-road on this, this sand road at a speed that we wouldn't be able to do if you weren't on a motorbike that can handle off-road riding. So it's amazing that for other vehicles, it's a very treacherous route. But on a motorbike, it's an adventure and it actually goes well in, in light of that. The second one was um, this week, uh, I picked the girls up from school and Kayla said, Dad, can we go to the beach? So we, we snuck out to Tinley and I thought, it looks fairly flat. Let me take my, my surfboard with me. Let me get the kids in the water to try and surf a bit. And when I looked at the water from up on the parking lot to when I actually got down there, I realized that I had misjudged how rough it was. So I, I went and had a paddle, but it was like all over the place and there was nothing consistent whatsoever. And I realized that it was being on a surfboard that made it comfortable to be able to do that. Um, I think if I just swam out on my own, I would have felt a little bit more vulnerable. But having this, this flotation device, I was equipped with the right tool to navigate what was going on. And the third one was a little while ago, Kayla and I went swimming at uh, Salt Rock. And if you know Salt Rock Beach, there's a massive shore break there. And it's not a place where I'd let her swim on her own. But she'll come out with me, and because she's with me, I know that it's safe. And, but I would never release her on her own to be in this shore break, because I think um, she doesn't have enough experience in the ocean to navigate the treacherous waters that there are, so she's going to land up getting hurt. But because we're together, I can help her, we, we get on the other side of where, where it's calm, and, and I help her get back in, and we time it, and it's, and it's so much fun. And, and I just felt for us, one, that God's equipped us with the right tools to navigate the journey that we're on. And, and the reality is the Bible doesn't say that this world is going to be an easy one to navigate through. Um, but what we do have is we've been equip, equipped with anointings, we've been equipped with gifts, we've been equipped with people to help us navigate treacherous routes. And, and then on the other hand, we've been granted the privilege of accessing the presence of the Father. So we know that we don't have to navigate these treacherous routes on our own. But as I am in the water with Kayla and I get to hold her and I get to make it fun, whereas if she was there on her own and I had left her there, she would panic. And I know that. I know that she would be incredibly scared to be out in the water alone. But because she can hold on to me, there's all of a sudden this calm that comes upon her and she actually really loves it. And 
And it's amazing what we can navigate through in the presence of the Father. And I want to share a couple of scriptures, and, and we're going to go through, continue our series on Acts. And I'm going to touch on the end of Acts 6 just to bring some context again. And we're going to go into Acts 7, but it's a lot of scripture. So I'm not going to read all of it. But I would recommend that we go through, read this, the whole scripture and see what God is saying there. But I want to read two portions of scripture first, just to set the tone for, for what happens to Stephen in, in chapter 7, Acts chapter 7. So if we look at John 15, from verse 18 going into chapter 16, verse 4. Says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So here it's immediately saying, as us as believers are not of the world. Because if we are, the world loves us as if we are its own. So it says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, we see the same thing in John 17 when he washes the disciples' feet. And we see the same um, phrase used, the servant is not greater than his master. In the context of John 17, he's just washed the disciples' feet, he's just washed... Judas's feet, even knowing he was going to be betrayed by Judas, and he says, now that I've set you the example, because a servant is not greater than his master, go and do what I've done. So I've set you the example for you to follow. And here again, it says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is what we've got to look forward to. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So not only is there this thing of we as believers face opposition and we as believers face persecution. But there's something that if people actually receive the word that Jesus gives and we speak his word, they will receive us as well. So it says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Again, remember, Jesus died so that he could restore fellowship to the Father. And here it's saying that because they don't know the Father, they will persecute us because of his name. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. It's the righteousness of Christ that actually brings about the conviction of our unrighteousness. Whoever hates me, hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. We often say, oh, but so many religions serve the same God, and as long as they love God, it's okay. Here Jesus puts an end to that, and he says, actually, if they reject me as the Son, they're rejecting him as Father. says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. 
Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So you don't know the context that Jesus is speaking is to his disciples and he's starting to prepare them for the things that are to come. And, and it's, quite a, it's quite a strong outworking. I mean, if I read this, it's not something that makes me excited. Um, we like to admit a lot of these things, and, it's, and for me, it's, it's a difficult passage of Scripture to preach from because it's easier to admit them and say, you know what, we just live this, this abundant life that's free from turmoil, free from, from challenges. When the Bible says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper, we kind of alter that to say, no weapon will be formed against me. No, 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 weapons will be formed against us, but the Bible is clear that they shall not prosper. So the weapons that are formed against us actually will come to nothing because we have an eternal hope in who Jesus is. I have a friend of mine who's been in hospital for the last two weeks, and we've been contending every day for him. Um, he was given treatment for, uh, for something, and the medication basically fast-tracked symptoms. He's been diagnosed with B-cell lymphoma, and he's been lying with his organs, have not been operating properly. And every day I get an update from his wife, and I, and I love the update. She sends me this message and she'll say, these are the things that we get to praise Jesus for today because there's stuff that, that's getting better. His um, fever has been broken. This is a, a praise point. And she'll highlight which are the praise points. And then she'll say, and um, his spleen, the, the inflammation in his spleen is starting to get better. This is a praise point. And then she'll say, these are the things that we need to keep praying into and she'll share what's still going on, and then she will share some scriptures that they as a family are praying over him, speaking as a prophetic declaration over him, scriptures of healing, scriptures of the promises of God that has been spoken over his life. And every day I get these messages of hope from a lady who is watching her husband suffer. And this, is a, this is one of my closest friends, and it's been hard to, to witness what is going on. But we contend and we fight because we know that we will face opposition. And I had a picture for him this week of targets on his body. And I just saw oil come. And as the oil flowed upon him, so the targets fell off his, off his body. And there's something of an anointing that comes. And just the, the attack that he's under to actually subside. And we contend for that. And we pray for him. And, and even now, in this moment, I want to lift him up. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for Tian, Lord, and I thank you, Father, for your call on his life, your grace over him, Lord. We know that these things are things that we will face. These are challenges we will endure, and we thank you, Lord, that one day we will be glorified with you, and they will cease to exist. But for now, Lord, I pray that you just place your hands upon his body and I pray that you speak life over him. Touch him and we know that he will be healed and healed fully. I pray as he lies in that hospital bed, Lord, that your presence will flow from, from within him out of, his, out of his room and even touch the lives of those around him, Lord Jesus. I pray that we will hear testimony of people that have just had an encounter with you because of his presence in that place. We come against any evil scheme that has been placed upon that man's life, any targets upon him, and we say in the name of Jesus, we just rebuke you.
So you have no authority over him. Pray for, for full healing right now in Jesus' mighty name. We go through these things, but we cannot be surprised when we, when we have them. We cannot be surprised at the treacherous routes that we land up having to navigate. So if we go back to the story of Stephen, and, and we see some of this artwork, in our, and the reason I read the scripture out of John 15 is it paints the picture of what's going to happen. So when the disciples start going through these things, they look back at the words that Jesus spoke and they realize that actually they had been prepared beforehand for the things that are yet to come. So it says in, in Acts 6 verse 8, and it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. Now the, the synagogue of the freedmen was basically guys who were uh, Israelites who had been enslaved under Roman law and had found their freedom, had the synagogue in, in um, I think it was in, in Jerusalem, if I'm not mistaken, but they, they were under Roman uh, slavery. They had been freed, so that's where the synagogue of the freedmen came. And it says, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia, from Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So they rose up, these guys came against Stephen, and they disputed with him. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You'll see spirit is a capital S there. So they could not withstand the wisdom through which he was speaking because he was speaking under anointing of the Holy Spirit. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up against the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they bring this accusation against this man, and they look upon him, and even in the accusation, he shone with the glory of God. It's an amazing testimony that paints the picture. So they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So then we go into chapter 7, verse 1, and it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And what happens is, Stephen starts to break down pretty much the first five books of the Bible, and he gives a summary of the first five books of the Bible. Now, you've got to know that he's speaking in a synagogue to priests in the synagogue. Now, these guys knew the five, first five books of the Bible by heart, which was part of their, their training. So you don't know when he starts bringing this, he starts bringing a theological outworking of Old Testament scripture to people who were experts in this field. They knew it by heart. But yet he starts to bring a perspective to them to actually challenge their perspective on who Jesus is through the scriptures that they know so well. There's something special about operating under anointing of Holy Spirit that we have the opportunity to speak in councils 
where we probably aren't qualified to speak. Yet when we do and we speak with his utterings, people will look upon us and say they could not withstand the wisdom, the spirit with which he was speaking. Something special about that. And he, and he goes on to say that he breaks uh, the whole Old Testament. I'm not going to read all of it because there's, there's a, a, a whole whackload of scriptures here. But he, he starts to break it open and he speaks about Moses and he speaks about Joseph and he speaks about going in, um, into the land of Egypt and famine and, and, and he speaks about what Moses did and the mighty words and deeds that he did. So I'm just going to scroll through for the sake of time. Um, it speaks about circumcision. It speaks about the fact that circumcision was a was given there, and how that the purpose of that was basically as a sign of their relationship with God. And he speaks about circumcising their hearts. Um, and all of these, if you go through and you click on all the little um, annotations in it, it goes back to the scriptures in which uh, Stephen was quoting as he starts quoting to these men, chapter and verse, the things that happened in the Old Testament. And it goes on to say, our fathers, in verse 44, had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, uh, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed, uh, sorry, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And still quoting scripture, but directing it at the council, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's a, a bold statement to make. You always resist the Holy Spirit. But you've got to know that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit was sent to point people so that they could see Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord, so that Jesus could reunite us to the Father and understand that that is the purpose of our salvation. These people had been waiting for the Messiah. They had learned about the Messiah. They had heard about him. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not prosecute or persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So what they're saying is you have betrayed and murdered the one that they had spoken of in the Old Testament, the one, the Messiah that was to come, this righteous one, you have killed him. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Because the law kept 
pointing us through to Jesus. So we cannot read the Old Testament and then read the New Testament with an Old Testament filter. We read the Old Testament with a filter of Jesus and we start seeing that everything of the Old Testament points us towards Him, points us towards having fellowship with the Father, points us towards the fact that we as humans are fallible and we actually need a Savior. We are enslaved to things and, and the king, when, when the Israelites cry out for a king, we finally received an everlasting king. One who cannot be dethroned. All these books point us towards Jesus. And here Stephen is saying to the council, and they killed the, uh, those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I have seen the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So I want to bring a couple of points to how Stephen handled this. And, and first and foremost, I want to say that us facing opposition is not evidence that we are not walking in the presence of God. This came with Stephen full of the Holy Spirit. So I think sometimes we feel that opposition is punishment because we're not walking closely enough with God. Therefore, why are we facing opposition? God's punishing us for not doing things well. Remember speaking to, a, uh, well, Shanae was speaking to a lady a while ago, a uh, number of years ago. And she retold the story of how she struggled to have kids and how she always accredited it as punishment because she was quite rebellious as a teenager and felt God was punishing her for her former sins. And that's why she battled. It's a strange outworking and a strange perspective when we see God in that manner. But point number one, if we live for Jesus, we cannot escape persecution. If the kingdom is taken by force, opposition is inevitable. So we're going through things and we might be navigating treacherous waters at the moment. We might find things are not going according to plan. Um, a lot of things that I thought would be different are going in the complete opposite direction. And we're just trusting for God to do what God does. And that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. But the reality is we are fighting a battle. And that battle is something that we have to navigate our way through. You can turn it down if you want to. Yeah. Number two, every encounter with people, even in the midst of persecution, is an opportunity to minister. 
The thing I love about Stephen is when asked, so what do you say against these accusations? He actually never addressed that. He used the opportunity to speak into the life of the council. He never felt it was necessary to defend himself. What he did do was use the opportunity to speak truth into the lives of those who were listening. Number three, we cannot diminish the call and purpose on the lives of, of people even if they are the ones hurting us. In John 17, you see Jesus wash Judas's feet even though he knew Judas was going to be uh, hurting him, persecuting him, uh, rejecting him, denying him, betraying him. He got down and he washed his feet. In this story, we see Someone who witnessed what had happened was a young man named Saul. A young man who watched Stephen breathe his last and say, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Now you'll see in Acts 8, the title of that is Saul ravages the church. Acts 9, Saul's conversion. So we know that Saul becomes Paul, the most influential author in the New Testament, was a man who witnessed how Stephen gave up his life for the sake of the gospel. We cannot diminish the call and purpose on the lives of people, even if they are the ones hurting us. Number four, if we are truly fighting against powers and principalities, we need to fully love people, even those who hurt us. So the Bible says, Ephesians 6, we no longer fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against powers and principalities. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter pulls out his sword and strikes the uh, dude's ear. Jesus goes and heals it, because we're not fighting <coughs> against flesh and blood, we're fighting against powers and principalities. There's been a shift in the New Testament as to who our enemy is. So can we truly love those who are causing the persecution? Can we truly love those who are hurting us? Can we truly love those who potentially are the ones that are wreaking havoc in the world around us? We'll go through this when we see the outworking of Saul's life, but the disciples were skeptical when Saul got converted. Yet he became one of the guys who actually led them and helped them fully understand who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Let us not be quick to write off the lives of people just because of their behavior. I want to end off with this. Luke 23, verse 32 to 34. This is where Jesus is getting crucified. And it says, Two others who were criminals who, led, uh, who were led away to be put to death with him when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified with him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I've often wondered, I remember years ago, and it's a picture that keeps coming up in my mind. I remember seeing a news broadcast of men who were beheaded uh, through ISIS in one of these terrorist um, displays and they had this whole thing of showing that they were beheading these uh, journalists. And the one guy was a Christian guy and he was a journalist who was beheaded on live TV and I remember seeing the report on this. 
And I often wondered, if I was in that situation, what would my last words be? Would I be willing to say, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Will I be able to look upon those who, under the banner of doing it for God, I mean, we saw in John 15, it says there, um, uh, where is it? Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Will we be able to be like Stephen in that moment, who looks upon those who were stoning him? They had already started. It wasn't like he said this before they stoned him. <laughs> it was in the moment before he gave his life up. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, he honored the Lordship of Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. His final act of public ministry was crying out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Can you imagine what the witnesses must have thought in that moment? Some of them might not have been the ones who had lifted stones and thrown them at Stephen. But they had an opportunity to watch this man in his dying words. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. I wonder if I ever face this, what will happen? We heard a little while ago of a gentleman who was in Pakistan who was arrested and persecuted for being a Christian. A friend of mine who knows him well was saying how he fears for his life because often these things don't even go to trial. They get murdered before that happens. Persecution still happens and we have the privilege of living in a country where we face very little persecution. Our lives are very seldom at risk because of our beliefs and our faith system. But yet we know that we will face opposition in everything that we do. And this morning I want to encourage us that God gives us the tools to navigate the treacherous routes that we need to. That God himself is in them with us when we are going through tough times. But we need to be careful that we don't write off people. That we love them irrespective of what they are doing. Doesn't mean that we condone their behavior. Doesn't mean that we have to agree with what they've done. But we love them. And if we have the opportunity, will we, with our dying breath, cry with a loud voice, say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know if we will, and I don't know if I will. I've never been tested in that way. But we can learn from this, and we can see the fruit that comes from Stephen's life. We hear very little about Stephen. We hear that he was a man after God's heart. He basically was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was gifted, became the first deacon, um, in, in Acts 6, he gets stoned to death in Acts 7, and he has this moment before the council where he shares with such incredible wisdom, but he gives his life up. His life wasn't taken from him. He gives his life up in the midst of it. Yes, he was murdered, but in that moment, he placed himself in a position 
where he didn't say anything to appease the ears of those who were listening. There's a movie called The Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom. And I don't remember much of the movie, but I remember that the priest would often walk around and anything that anyone said, he would say blasphemy. Blasphemy, blasphemy. Everything was blasphemy. And there was this moment where uh, the, uh, the Islamic army had surrounded this, this um, Christian uh, little city. And this priest starts running through the streets saying, convert to Islam, repent later. Convert to Islam, repent later. The same priest that had been crying out blasphemy throughout the whole movie and everything was blasphemous. When his opportunity came to stand for the king and his kingdom, he surrendered to the opposition because he wasn't willing to give his life up for the things that he had so unintentionally spoken of in times previously. So Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father, for our call. I thank you, Lord, that you don't release us into this world helpless and hopeless, but you come with us. You don't expect us to endure anything that you yourself, as fully man, did not endure. He who was fully God became fully man, and he endured these things. Lord, I thank you that you do not expect us to do anything outside of what you've already endured. Lord, I pray, Father, for Christians around the world who right now might be faced, like just in this position, in this moment, they might be standing before a council who are falsely accusing them, who are telling them to renounce their faith in you, because who are you? Who is this Jesus that you speak of? These blasphemous words of elevating Jesus the Messiah onto the throne. Lord, I pray right now for moments where souls around the world will hear the loud cries of your people. Forgive them for they know not what they do. I pray for us, Lord, for a strength in character, a courage, a boldness a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to speak words with boldness. I pray for opportunities, Lord, that we will love those who hurt us. Father, I pray for a supernatural strength to rise up within us, to stand against this enemy who wants to come and bring destruction upon us. I pray, Father, that we will never be people who kill your beloved with friendly fire will stand firm and hold on to the things that you have called us to. May our lives be a testimony of your glory, Lord Jesus. I just pray for us as a church, Father, that we will go out and love on people, lavish them with the love of a Father who gave his only begotten Son. that we will truly recognize that we are not greater than our master and follow your example, King. Everything that we do. And may we do it with a heavenly perspective, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.